I think Google's business model is going to go away. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. Today, we've got an incredible episode planned. We've got Ben Gilbert, the one, the only, the acquired guy on the show to talk shop. We're going to talk startups. We're going to talk acquisitions, IPOs, and a lot of greatness. I don't know if you guys have listened to Ben's podcast. It's definitely a must. It's one of the it's one of the ones that doesn't suck. I hope the syndicate's in that list as well, but you guys are going to have to tell me. Thanks for coming today, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, I am I am one half of the Acquired podcast. I uh, I am, my my better half is uh, is David Rosenthal, who's uh, who's down in the valley, and I'm I'm up here in Seattle. I saw you guys started a VC firm together, but then you're no longer part of it. Uh, no, it ha- uh, has nothing to do with me, and uh, I think I, I I don't represent David at all in, in talking about that. So um, I think he's he's working on some new things, and uh, I'm up here at, at Pioneer Square Labs. What do you guys do? So we are a startup studio. We basically um, come up with ideas for startups and uh, and see if we can turn them into to real companies. So um, we started about two years ago. We've raised $12.5 million for the studio operations. We, um, we've got a staff of about 20. And we've killed 63 ideas and spun out six into venture-backed companies. I like that you lead with the killed stat because it is, it is really all about learning fast. Well, I also feel, <laughs> yes, it is. And I very much feel that that's the credibility that earns you the spin-outs. I think uh, when we went into it, we, uh, we weren't sure what the kill rate would be. And it is interesting that it really is sort of like one out of 10 ideas are, are good enough after being really put through the ringer to, uh, to justify becoming their own company and putting a leadership team in place and um, raising some seed capital. That's a really interesting model. So traditionally, you see someone funding one company or raising a fund. You guys are doing something a little bit in the middle. How do you raise money to start a venture studio? Yeah, yeah. So the, um, the way it's interesting, the, the way we raise money is... I think pretty essential to the way that a studio like this can operate. So we raised from 14 different venture firms, some of the, the best firms up here in Seattle and then in Silicon Valley, Foundry Group out of Boulder and, and uh, some firms down in LA and, uh, and over 50 angel investors. And the idea for this is twofold. One is um, to get the, the best ideas to flow into us because there's tons of non-operating investors that have great ideas for companies that you know would back a company if they were doing that and they were sort of involved from the very beginning. So we get tons of ideas sent to us from our investors who are heavily invested in, in our success. And then it also helps on the other side too, once something does make it sort of through the, the pipeline to be able to, to get the right talent there, to be able to use the networks of um, a bunch of different investors to explore new markets and to, uh, to get it, it funded. Because we, we send a monthly email to all of our investors, hey, here's what we're working on. And people raise their hands very early to be able to to get a look at deals before uh, before they become deals. That is a brilliant business model. I heard once, if you have a mentor, the beautiful thing about a mentor, if they get engaged enough with you, is they want to see you win so much so that they don't 
they put in all of that extra effort for you. So you've got your, <laughs> you've got your, you've got your people lined up. You've got the money. You've got the connections. You've got everything. That's interesting. That's like an accelerator model, but sort of flipped on its head. How's it working? Well, it's, it's going great. I mean, we, uh, we in our first year spun out three companies. We've uh, announced three that we've spun out so far in our second year, and we still have probably some more coming before, uh, before the end of year that'll be public. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things where once the flywheel starts turning, uh, it really adds to the future success because at the very beginning, you know, you're, you're a few people with uh, an idea that you can start companies in a, in a repeatable way. And then once you actually start doing it, then the, you know, the, the most talented folks in, in Seattle who think entrepreneurially start looking at you and saying, Hey, like that, you know, that'd be a great place to start my company. I know so-and-so started there and it looks like, you know, that company's doing well. I wonder what the secret sauce is. And so it's one of these sort of success begets success things. Personally, I think Bezos needs to spin out AWS before Amazon's get screwed with monopoly stuff. So talk <laughs> about how do you spin out a company? What's that look like? Yeah. So internally, we have a project lead who's basically acting as kind of the, the pre-CEO of that business. And it's their job to be incredibly optimistic and pursue anything that they think could make that business successful. And so it involves tons of pivots. It's very thrashy early on. And we basically sort of either pick a space and then start mapping the space and figure out where we can create value in it or come up with an idea sort of whole cloth from a problem that occurs to us in everyday life. So the, the project lead is that ever the optimist pushing forward, their foil is one of our uh, managing directors who it's their job to keep them accountable, to make sure that, that if we're going to spin this thing out, you know, it's, it's our reputation on the line. So we have to be creating higher quality deal flow than you would see otherwise to be able to, to really sort of maintain this amazing network that we have. And, uh, and also, you know, we, the, the, the people that, that are really the founders of these companies who we spin them out to, the, the future CEOs of these companies, they're incredibly high quality operators. And so it's, it's really on us to make sure that anytime that we, we call up someone who trusts us and say, hey, you know, we, we've got something really interesting for you, that the, uh, the project lead has, has been ever the optimist and pushed it forward. And the, uh, the managing director has sort of poked at it with all the right sort of skepticism. And what that really ends up looking like is over the course of you know, three or four months, you end up building the, the straw man that will become the, the pitch seed deck. And you're trying to fill in all those slides. So you want to have a clear problem, a great solution, some traction, you know, why, why you believe this will work, who we can get behind it as a team, early partnerships, things like that. And it's basically just assembling the, the, the complete picture by the time you spin it out. It's like a semi-corporate startup incubator. But the, the problem is corporates always screw this up, incentives. How do you line that up with people that are founders, entrepreneurially oriented? How do you motivate them to, is this their company? Is, what's, the, what's the equity deal look like? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So when we spin something out to someone, there's really a refounding that happens. So even though there's people that have been working on it inside of, uh, inside of Pioneer Square Labs for months, and there's a project lead who's really been owning it, there's a dramatic shift in um, just how the project feels when, when the, the CEO commits to it and says, you know what? you've been telling me about this thing, I'm now in. And the, the pace of work changes, the, the strategy changes, the ownership changes. And like, it, there's a, um, I know this is the squishy stuff, but the business starts moving much more quickly when there's like commitment and actual interest from outside investors in backing the person that's coming in. And so it, it really does feel like sort of a refounding of the company. So we, we call the CEOs and, and often CTOs or chief product officers, the, the founders of these companies. And from an equity perspective, it really varies depending on 
a lot of the circumstances of, uh, of the company. Unlike a traditional accelerator program where you could see anywhere from 10 to 100 companies going through in batch, each of these are sort of one-off. And so it really depends how early the entrepreneur was working with us. Uh, in one case with, with Lumitax, it was actually an entrepreneur in residence with us that came up with the idea that there was no project lead. Robert Schulte was the, the CEO and effectively project lead internally on that idea and, and took it out of PSL from, from whole cloth. So you know, it's, it's, it's pretty variable. And uh, I think we're looking at, at would we ever standardize something in the future, but you know, very circumstantial. Why do you think there's not a lot of competition in this space? You know, I think it's really hard to do this kind of thing repeatedly. And it involves two things that are often non, non-overlapping. And one of them is, is deep, deep networks and trusted, uh, trusted people that you've worked with from many years to sort of slot the right executives into place. And so our, our managing directors, uh, Jeff Entris, uh, Mike Galgon, Greg Gottesman, and, and Julie Sandler, have some of the like best networks and reputations and um, have really built amazing companies with people in the past and, and have a lot of these relationships built up. So that's where the sort of founder pipeline ends up coming from. And then on the other side of that, it's, it's like deep desire to operate day to day. And so I think it sort of is a, a VC style network play, but with uh, the day to day of an entrepreneur or operator. Which makes it way more fun. By the way, VCs, if you're looking for <laughs> if you're looking for money to pour somewhere, <laughs> listen to this episode and reach out to reach out to Ben. Well, it's funny, you know. We, um, I think the the model has a a little bit more conflicts, but it can be done in a venture firm too. Like we, uh, the the precursor to, to Pioneer Square Labs was doing this uh, inside of Madrona Venture Group as as Madrona Labs, and we spun out uh, a few great companies from from Madrona Labs. The most uh, the, the earliest was Mighty AI. Which has has become pretty successful in the um, the uh, AI and autonomous vehicle space, and uh, you know it, I think it's um, with with the right sort of champion inside of a firm, the the model works inside of a firm as well. You're an operator, right? I am. I am. I'm actually the interim CEO of our our most recent spinout, so I'm pulling double duty right now. How do you give up control? I see. I can see with an investor where they have the investor hat. But you don't really have the investor hat. You don't really have the operator hat. You have something different. How do you handle that with entrepreneurs, especially on spinouts afterwards? Well, I think if PSL as a core operation wasn't as much fun, I would have a little bit more difficulty with it. It's um, <laughs> you develop similar to a VC, even though you're inside the ideas working on them. You become quite dispassionate about the ideas because while you're super excited to push it forward and ever the optimist and, and you know excited that it could turn into something, you turn the crank on a lot of ideas and you kill your babies over and over again. So if the, the norm nine out of 10 times is killing your baby, then handing it off to someone who's going to be a much better CEO than you ever could be is, is a huge success. And I think the other thing is, is hopefully the, the kind of person who's coming in to take over the company is someone that you know, you're, you're just excited to give it to because you know that the business has a better chance of success with them than you. That was like the business model of adoption in the mid, uh, mid, medieval, <laughs> medieval times when you had that nine out of 10 chance, just, just give the baby away. I like it. So you're at, you're at Madrona. Is that where you met David? Um, yeah, David and I were, uh, were, I was at Madrona Labs and he was a, a principal there at that time. And, uh, and I've both, both moved on now, but yeah, that was a, it was a good era. Why'd you start Acquired? Uh, so David and I would try and, and get drinks probably once a month, and it would often sort of fall off our calendar. 
Um, and I remember one time he and I were grabbing drinks and I was pitching him. I had two ideas for podcasts that, that I thought could be interesting at one point. And uh, he really latched onto the one that became acquired and said, well, you know, if, if, uh, if we're doing a podcast, then we like kind of have to be accountable to hang out with each other like every other week or so. And so we looked at it at first as like, well, it's just a, a great opportunity for us to get together and talk in our otherwise busy lives. That's a really interesting point. I think that's something I've seen it work a lot of times with co-hosts because then you can riff off each other as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anyone who's listened to our show, I mean, we have a format and we have a very specific topic for each episode, but we've got this, this section called tech themes that is sort of the, a big, the big meat of the show in the middle. And that ends up turning into like, what, are, what have David and I been thinking about the last week or so and debating and sometimes agreeing too much, but that's, that's kind of our riff time. Realistically, you're cranking out MB, an MBA type acquisition, mergers and acquisition, IPO, all the, all the good stuff, nice meaty podcast that people can learn a lot from. What have you learned from it? Well, other than, other than IPOs and mergers don't always go great. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The original tagline of the show was uh, technology acquisitions that actually went well. And then we uh, ran out of those as an exclusive focus for the show and broadened to ones that we just thought, you know, had interesting takeaways. One of the interesting takeaways, I think, is if you, if you keep the team separate, depending on the type of acquisition, the, bus- the, the acquisition has a much higher chance of succeeding. And I know there's like the whole, there's, there's a whole discipline around this of change management, really understanding when you should integrate and when you shouldn't. But um, particularly for uh, network effects businesses, maintaining a pretty good arm's length from the uh, asset that you're acquiring, rather than trying to integrate that too quickly, um, ends up being a, a, a super valuable uh, thing to preserve the value of the acquisition. I.e. Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, uh, best. I, I think Facebook's probably the acquirer of the last decade, maybe even two, as far as the the um, gold standard to look at. Acquirer and murderer, <laughs> in some cases. But you know, there, in 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 many cases, when uh, when something gets shut down, it's one of the sections of the show is classifying the type of acquisition. Most often, these technology acquisitions, uh, the current line of business of whatever the acquiree is doing, gets shut down. But if uh, if the focus was correct of the corp dev group that's bringing it in, and it's not just like, we think we could use this, but more, we know exactly where we're going to apply this to get higher leverage out of it. You know, shutting down the, the, the core product and integrating it proves to be a, a, a better model. Oh, when I meant murder, I meant like Snapchat deal, like either, either oh. rip it or buy it. Yes. Where, where, yes. Do you see that, where do you see that going in the future? The future, there's been a lot of acquisitions. There haven't been much in terms of IPOs lately. Do you see that changing? Well, you know, I think if, if in this sort of thing, I always like to like look at the incentives and try and follow where the biggest cash is coming from. I think you have to trace it back to early stage and mid stage IRR calculations right now, where a lot of early investors need liquidity, need an out. A lot of companies are are more and more resistant to to going public. So we're seeing sort of these huge late stage financing deals that come in that honestly... I, you know, I'm sure being actually regulated by the SEC and having to do quarterly earnings calls are are worse. But when Fidelity owns a big chunk of your stock in a mutual fund and they have the power to mark it down and that sends external signal about your company, it feels like a lot of the private late stage capital now is just as harsh on a company as uh, um, it, maybe not just as harsh, but close to as harsh as public company report, reporting. And so I think we're nearing the end of this 
everyone's going to be big and private longer. And we're going to have to start seeing some forced liquidity because tons of money tied up in these, these, uh, these companies right now and, and investors need an out. And I don't know if it's, it's uh, IPOs that they're going to sort of force through or if it's uh, um, acquisitions that are going to be happening at the valuations, you know, below the valuations that people want. But you can't just keep taking private money forever. Just look at Benchmark. Eventually, you have to sue the company because you have to land the plane. <laughs> yeah. Did you read? Are you, do you read Stratechery? I, don't, I don't read it. I listen to the podcast, though. He's a very smart guy. I love the podcast. Yeah, he is. He makes this really great point in the the benchmark um, in those dealings where uh, for a long time, it's about, it's about uh, uh, building goodwill and, and building uh, um, the opportunity to have the, the one decacorn that, that comes out. And then sometimes it's about actually just making sure that you, you get the value out of that when you have the golden goose. And it's sort of interesting to think about it through that lens of you know, everyone's criticizing benchmark and, and similar firms right now for being less founder friendly and turning on them. But if you, I mean, they, they, they have a fiduciary responsibility and this is maybe the, the most money that they'll ever make from a company. So the, there does come a point where, um, you know, I'm not saying that it was a good idea to, to sue or anything, but it does come from, uh, putting that lens on of, we got to make sure that this one works out for us. Well, I mean, during the cold war there, both sides had spies. You have to fight back when you're fighting against a, an op- <laughs> opponent that doesn't play by the rules. That's yeah. that, that's kind of standard. Where were where will ICOs and tokens affect the IPOs? In my opinion, in my opinion, tokens become stocks because they're just smarter and more effective. Yeah, man. I uh, so I will tell you, I've thought a lot about this, and I've talked to a lot of people that are doing awesome stuff on the blockchain, and I have taken very little action on it. Because I, I think right now, so few Oof. of the companies are actually creating intrinsic value that is blockchain-based. That is, there, there is a reason why building this new version of whatever the thing is on the blockchain is better than its centralized counterpart. I think that holds true in like 1% of these, these ICOs and, and blockchain companies right now. And so I think that we're in a massive cryptocurrency bubble that will pop. There will be tremendous value in this new technology. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's internet scale, but you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change things. But we're going to go through a period of, of sort of reckoning. And then it, it'll be interesting to see sort of what's standing afterwards. And I, I, I think there was a great tweet flying around last week that said, you know, the internet was a bubble in, in 2000, but it turned out like it actually had incredible intrinsic value. We have to go through this period first of everyone being overexcited about something, seeing it crash, and then we'll see it kind of rebuilt from the ashes. Well, the biggest difference about this is this is the internet bubble exponentially faster. And you have stupid yeah. money. And you have stupid money in immediately. Most, most regular investors couldn't get in until the IPO, in which case it was a bit later. It's, it's much earlier now. I think it's going to go big. It's going to pop big. And then it's ultimately going to go. It, it will be the future, in my opinion. It replaces and simplifies a lot of things. It also, it also brings the question of, well, when money is decentralized, what's the point of government? <laughs> Thoughts? Yeah, I mean the 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 purpose of a of a government is to provide stability in people's lives and to provide faith and confidence that underlying fundamentals will continue to be true. And we see shifts back and forth in interest rates and inflation and deflation, all these things. But like ultimately, it's a massive smoothing curve to prevent to prevent anarchy and. I suppose our current form of government is not the the only way to do that, right? Like if if um, 
if there were other systems like a, a microtransaction thing built on the blockchain where all actions were tied to an amount of, of value that, that um, you know, would, would have repercussions on your life, you could see someone coming up with, with another, another form of government that is blockchain-based. Boy, there's probably like a decade of, of deep thinking that needs to go into that before, uh, before anyone can say if it's a good idea. But yeah, it feels like it's going to disrupt more than, just, uh, more than just currency, more than just company fundraising, more than just ownership. It does feel societal. It definitely feels societal. It's exciting, especially considering some of the stagnant and political challenges. I don't want to get into those now. Let's talk happy things. So yeah, <laughs> you talk acquisitions. Who needs to buy who? Where do you see the most value out there in creation from one company buying another company? Well, my favorite to always speculate on is Apple. Like they, they have so much money on their balance sheet and so much of it is, is overseas. So one thing I'm shy of, of um, a, a tax haven for repatriating capital right now, it's interesting to think about who has a ton of cash and what overseas assets they could buy. For a while, I was on the sort of Apple should buy Disney train. But I, I've gotten off that a little bit. I'm not sure it actually makes sense for, for Apple to be a content company, despite them investing huge, huge amounts of money in, in content. But it is interesting to think about sort of the who should the big four buy overseas to do something with that capital. And, and I just like particularly like diving into Apple because, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you could buy countries with that. And so... I don't have a great answer for you right now. I think I, I thought you might ask me this and I wish I'd thought about it a little bit more before the show, but yeah, n n I don't have a great answer. No worries. I'll, I'll give you an idea. In my opinion, Apple's headed on the way down and will die. What are your, what are your thoughts? I know that's incredibly controversial, but if you see everything <laughs> they're doing, it's like they're doing what they shouldn't do. They're screwing customers. They're not making better products. They're actually probably making worse products and everyone else is moving. Is is Apple at the peak? Is this Rome? No. No. I think uh, it's going to be... So if you look at the direction technology is going with uh, you know centralized cloud computing, uh, machine learning driving more experiences, like the, the ML and AI is more core to the experience than you know high frame rate animations on things, which has always been sort of Apple's core competency. Uh, you could make the argument that, boy, Google's the best at, at, uh, at building these, these cloud services. Google and Amazon are the best at, at sort of the cloud infrastructure for that. The device is becoming less important. I think simultaneously, we are in a silicon revolution where Apple has, has, through the acquisition of PA Semi a while back and building out an amazing silicon team over the last 10 years, they're doing they're creating experiences now by vertically integrating hardware all the way from the the chip and component level all the way up through the the glass and and the you know what comes off the glass on your screen i think apple is going to continue to in-house more and more things to build new experiences that you couldn't by being a, a an assembler of components and i think that they're going to to and we're even seeing this with the iphone 10 a little bit with a lot of the computational photography stuff but they failed on like all of it they they kind of did it and they you, talked about it and they did demos and then most of it didn't work well. What do you mean most of it didn't work well? Uh, I mean this is my this is my Apple apologist probably fanboyism coming through here for the last few decades. But I feel I feel like, like the, are you talking about the Craig Federici demo where he picked up the phone and it didn't didn't face recognize? Just a lot of the, a lot of the things a lot of the hype didn't materialize into good results. 
is that's yeah. that's been my that's been my feeling is they're just trying to sell higher price adapters higher price this and that no so okay here's here, here's where I'll say there's there's sort of these two tech trends and Apple's not good at the first one the, the sort of cloud services and and um, just call it broadly cloud services but they are really good at the like there's all this new stuff and AR kit is just like one of the first things like we're we're about to be in an AR revolution here and I think that Apple is well positioned to um, to be the best at those things that require a lot of device based vertical integration I think that's the one thing to in my opinion, the one thing that might save them. Like I would buy, I, I have a MacBook and in my opinion, that product is superior. But then if you look at other products, I feel like when you take Apple people, they always apologize for what Apple does wrong <laughs> and, and assume it's just their device. Whereas you have Android people and they're kind of, they're kind of a pain in the ass and they're going to complain about everything. And they assume that it's Android, that it's Microsoft, et cetera. I always, you just see Apple people apologizing and saying, oh, it must just be my my device. I don't know. That's my bold prediction is Apple is on well, the way down. Well, Matt, we are part of a religion, so we have to uh, we have to obey our uh, our leadership. <laughs> yeah, but the God died and the new one just is trying to milk you. It's like the church of that's a, OK, let's not get into religion. That's a really, <laughs> really bad idea. I want to do, do you have any bold predictions about tech trends? Hmm. Uh, I think Google's business model is going to go away. Yeah. What happens with VR and AR for Google and voice? Yeah. So here, here's, here's my, um, here's my logic on Google. We are moving to a world that is about answers, not choices. And when you look at what Google has made all of its, its money off doing, I think like 90% of, um, of, uh, 97% of their revenue comes from, uh, from advertising and then 80% of their advertising revenue comes from from AdWords so things on you know the, the top few blue links before you click the links and that product of search makes lots and lots of sense in a world where computers can't actually figure out the answer it can only point you in the right direction and Google actually themselves are disrupting this they're at the very forefront of being an answers company and doing all the incredible heavy lifting and machine learning on the back end to to actually be able to surface to you the thing, the actual thing that you want without that extra hop in the middle. And so as we move to, uh, as that gets better, then you have the opportunity to do uh, uh, more and more voice-based interfaces. So things like Alexa and things like Google Home, where they'll be able to just spit out an answer. And in many cases, when they can just spit out an answer, you don't need a screen and you don't need a, a list of options. And so if Google's business model is selling you one, you know, selling one of the options to an advertiser in a list of options. And now they, they have made the technology good enough where they're just going to provide you the answer. I'm very curious what happens. Like, does every answer that, that gets spit out, is it all blended of, of organic and, uh, and paid? And there really is no differentiation between the ad product and the organic product. And you just you might be getting a sponsored result, you might not be. Or does Google just switch their business model entirely and go hard at, at hardware and try and look more like Apple, where they're selling differentiated devices? And you know, they're, they're certainly trying to preserve option value by, by really being serious about that business with the Pixel 2. But I, th- I could see definitely going the hardware route. So Google, Google did terrible with the classes. But eventually, they're going to get to the point of contacts. And if you just look at the, if you just look at Google, they are the best at answering. So mm-hmm. 
you could have Google, you could have Amazon, you could have, I mean, Apple would be a joke at this point. You could have someone else in that space. I think it's just those two. Amazon's just going to sell you something. So when you ask for anything, it's going to be the first Amazon Basics product. If you don't want that, Google's business model can probably be just charging based off of a we're not going to bullshit you model. Yeah, I don't know about that Amazon Basics thing. I think that the the way that Amazon bootstraps, so I think Amazon's business model is building a platform that other people can make money on and is the best way for consumers in the world to buy that thing and then they take a, a cut of it. Like Amazon is, I don't, I don't believe that the long term of Amazon is as a first party anything. I think that being a bookseller and being a first party merchant was the way to bootstrap their growth originally. So they did have something of everything. But I think ultimately, if the entire GDP is flowing through Amazon and they're just the directory and taking a cut by providing services in the middle, that's a far better business and where they're going than actually being, having sort of like their line of basics, their line of whatever be the thing that they want you to buy. See, you think that, but my background is Amazon. So I built, I built and sold an Amazon company. That's how I got into this. I built up a podcast, FBA All-Stars. If you guys are interested in Amazon e-commerce stuff, check it out. Oh, it was, cool. It was, it was one of the top ones. But Amazon's business model has changed drastically. They built something and accidentally stumbled into the third-party marketplace. That's not what they intended to do. They intended to have mm-hmm. people selling. And then people realize, people like me, hey, I can start my own brand and start selling on there. What we've seen and what I've seen, Amazon's doing two things. A, they're encouraging Chinese sellers to come in to cut out the other guys because then Amazon's able to say, hey, you guys have better prices. And that model runs itself. So there's one of two possible ways that the Amazon game kind of reaches its conclusion or it gets to an end game in the next 10, 20 years. Amazon Basics or Amazon Everything China. It's either going to be just Chinese brands or it's going to be Amazon Basics because you've seen Amazon's analyzing data of clicks, of impressions, of conversion rates, of PPC costs. And as, yep. they, as they see products that are performing well, they are just going and ripping that off, going to the supplier, cutting it out, cutting the pricing out. Because once Amazon has the entire market, which is what Alexa will do, when you have Alexa and you have an Amazon Basics version of everything, I say, hey, Alexa, I want toilet paper. Hey, Alexa, I need a baby bath. Hey, Alexa, I need whatever this is you automatically get the Amazon version because there's no searching. Amazon's goal is to be the everything store. It may not have been initially, but it's their goal to be the store and the brand for everything, in my opinion. Bezos is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, here, here's another one. I think Amazon may be the, uh, if you had a dollar to put in a startup or a dollar to put in Amazon, like I, I think they may still be like a higher growth potential than a startup. Potentially, I see Amazon getting broken up because they're doing too much. Bezos is literally a proponent of universal basic income, basically saying, I know I'm going to ruin all jobs, so we need to set up a system like this. If they're not careful, Amazon is going to have challenges because it is clearly the best business in the world, bar maybe Alibaba Taobao in China is actually a bit bigger and more (laughs) successful, but that's only because it's China. But Amazon is mm-hmm. expanding incredibly rapidly, and they own just about everything. I think it's um, it's it's very very interesting. Who should Amazon buy? Amazon. The Whole Foods episode you guys did was interesting. To be honest, I think Ben Thompson did it a little bit better. But I think Ouch. you would be okay. I think you'd be okay with me saying that <laughs> because you guys seem, you yeah. guys like him. He's a very smart dude. He is. He is. Who else should Amazon buy? I like the idea of Amazon buying the 
buying things that will bootstrap more platforms for them. So I, I think, you know, Amazon's a, I know they're the everything store and I know you're, you're saying their goal is to, you know, sell you everything them, themselves first party. I think they have a, a rich future in continuing to build out more platforms for people, for businesses to run on. And like, I'm very interested to see, I think something that's it's in its infancy is their sort of voice computing platform. I'm very curious what they could buy right now that would grow the Alexa business, that would make it so that Alexa was a way for people to no-brainer create new businesses and, and generate new revenue. And I think right now, it's, a, it's too much of a toy for that, and there's no obvious path. I'm not sure who they could integrate to, to turn that into the case. See, I feel like Alexa is the most dangerous thing when it comes to e-commerce in the world. Because it's it's the same problem with Google is there's no other choice. And when there's no other choice, you you sell your own product. Yeah. Do you think Alexa should get into to autos at all? Like, do you think, I mean, everyone's skating after the Google skating after Uber skating after self-driving cars. Apple may have an electric vehicle. Like, should Amazon play in that space? I don't see why they wouldn't just develop an app for the phone so you could have it in your phone. Um, it seems like the hardware play, that's what Apple does, but ultimately it's not necessarily the best way to do it. It might be the most profitable way currently, but Apple kind of sacrifices long-term for short-term gains. But if Amazon wanted to do it well, they could do it so it integrated directly into cars. That would work. I imagine Tesla would be game with that. Elon Musk could make more money. But um, but yeah, it would be, interest- yeah. It would be interesting auto. The problem is going to be, though, soon you're not going to own your car. So right, it, right. You're gonna well, be- I mean, Amazon pioneered the subscribe and save, and they have they have a you know their their prime business. They have this rich subscription um, uh, knowledge built up. Like, should if I'm if my argument stands that they're they're a platform company, should they have the self driving car platform where they're the best at having you subscribe to cars that come pick you up? They could they could either they could either go one of two routes. They could try to become the provider for the self-driving cars, or what I think would be an easier in would be provide the software for the self-driving cars, specifically on an Alexa side. So, hey, Uber's probably going to lose. It's probably going to be Lyft Google, and just because you have the combination of the two most important skills. Wow, bold. That's, that's my prediction. I think Uber's probably in trouble. It's also, when you're down, everybody beats you. Uh, they beat you up, stock prices go down, your, your investors start to sue you. But if Let's say there's an Alexa-based system inside of a self-driving car. So now you have a fleet. Well, if you want to order anything while you're driving, that works. If you want yep. to watch any video while you're driving, that works. It doesn't have to be owned by the company that's providing it. They can have that as a service they have that mm. they use to sell to customers. So they become an Amazon associate, having mm-hmm. affiliate links, so to speak. So that could be a way where they could do it without having to own all of their content. Google could probably pull that off on their side if they did it with a Lyft. But if Amazon wanted to really, really make their business model, to be fair, if they bite off too much, they still could blow up. But um, <laughs> you, you, never, you yeah. never know. Bezos might just overstep. He hasn't done it yet. But um, when, you, when you overstep, you can, uh, you can get into a car crash. It's true. It's this, true. This has been an unexpectedly interesting and all, all around the all around the world type, uh, all around the world type episode. Ben, I know, I know you're an incredibly busy dude. I know you said you had to drive into work. Let's, let's slowly start to wrap this up. What's something we haven't talked about yet that you think we probably should? 
I'm super interested in sort of the changing dynamic of cities and where the where people are choosing to live and how the quality of life is changing on a generational basis. So I'm at this stage of life right now where uh, I've now lived in in Seattle for six years. I, a few years ago, I'm 28. Um, a few years ago, I sold my car and uh, I basically did the the calculation and figured out even if I uh, Uber everywhere way too much, there's no way I will ever spend as much as the depreciation on my car and rent in the city uh, for a parking spot and uh, and car insurance. And so that was sort of the first thing where I was like, okay, the life that my generation is aspiring for is sort of different than the one from our our parents. Like my status symbol will not be a car. The aspiration that that I'm looking for, and I don't think I'm alone in this in any way, is not the two-car garage in the suburbs. It's even from a house perspective in many ways, it's that that cool town home in the city or that condo, that high-rise condo or I think that our generation has a desire to live more densely and use more shared resources and uh, uh, be much more on demand, much more subscription. Obviously, the sharing economy is a big theme here. I think that we're kind of tip of the iceberg on the collision of subscribing to things and urbanization. And I've been trying to think a lot more about what does a life look like in five to 10 years with these trends continuing? Like, what else do I currently own that I currently have inherited as a value from my parents that is just going to evaporate as a, a thing that is an intrinsic value in my life? You know, it'd be interesting. As driverless cars come around, people are packed more into cities. The parking spaces are all useless. You could just turn those into parks, and then you have cities that are actually nice. You're right. And it's funny, I met with, um, I met with the Seattle Department of Transportation uh, a couple of months ago, and they threw out this fascinating tidbit in just sort of a in in a longer conversation that blew my mind, and that's that the Department of Transportation is responsible for half the the square footage of the city because it includes roads and parking spots and sidewalks. And when you look at that and you add that space all up and you add up the, the building space, like it's actually half the space. You can really only have buildings in in half of it because there's so much necessary for infrastructure. So I I'm excited for the you know. If if self-driving cars become a thing anytime soon, is that the answer or is that kind of silly because it's people are still not densely enough, not not there is still a lot of wasted space because it's still cars. There is, but there will be a lot less cars. The one challenge with the driverless thing is who's going to run it. And when they're running it, like for Uber, the reason Uber's business model works is they don't own the cars. When they have to own the cars, you think about it and you're like, oh, it'll be 100% efficient. But most of the time, actually, there's, there's a reason why people aren't using their car, and it's because they don't need it. So at night, mm-hmm. you're going to need way less cars. In the rush hour, you're going to need way more. Middle of the day, way less. It kind of has a weird balancing effect where it's going to cost a ton of money to run those fleets initially. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you think, I mean, what, what else, what else, what like radically is something that we feel like, well, of course I have to do this. It's only I could ever, ever. I I need to own this. Like I need to own this house or I need to own this job. Like will we see like subscribing to income or or like sharing what else are we going to piecemeal now that people still maintain government. control over? Government. In my in my hmm. in my opinion the US is Rome right now. It's in trouble. And hmm. I, and I see a lot of changes happening in the future. Hmm. 
that's a that's a whole totally different topic. But but piecemeal, yeah. Um, job definitely, just because it, we're getting more and more into a gig based thing. Where I do this, and then maybe I do that. But um, right. Yeah, piecemeal. Hmm. I I can't think of anything. The only the only logical the only logical thing I could say would be everything. So. But that that would be a much more socialist, communist type society where suddenly everyone owns the movie theaters. But I don't know what else we to keep, say. We keep trying to stay away from religion and political philosophy here and keep drifting ever closer. I think that's a I think that's a sign of the times. Yep. Ben, this has been awesome. This has been fun. It's I've been glad to have you on. I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. Where is the best place for people to check out and say you're awesome? Oh, um, they don't need to do the latter, but uh, I'm twitter.com slash Gilbert, and uh, you, can, uh, you can tweet at me there. And if you find his email, you need to start that subject line with, you're awesome, because Ben's, Ben's, <laughs> Ben's a cool dude. Thanks for coming on today, Ben. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you guys have liked this, the syndicate's totally free. We don't have any cheesy ads, at least to this point. And that means that I could really use your support. Go to thesyndicate.vc slash iTunes, subscribe, leave a review, especially about Ben's episode. Ben's done really well and we've gone all over the park. He had no idea where this was going. He's handled it really, really well. He might even show up at your house to give you like some cookies or something. I can't promise anything because we didn't talk about it ahead of time, but Ben seems like a pretty good guy. I think he makes cookies. Uh, I have, I have salt on top. It's the important part. Oh, salt. Okay. Salt. Well, thanks for tuning in guys. Thanks for coming on, Ben. It's been fun. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers, guys, and go uh, go get to work or something. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.